0: Thank you, Gene. I'm so glad you're home, especially at this time. And we must pledge, even today, to keep uh, the people and the nation of Japan in our minds, in our hearts, and in our prayers. And uh, not only they, but uh, the people in the Ivory Coast, and Libya, and Egypt, and Tunisia, and Sudan. <laughs> We live in turbulent days. This is not the way it was in Genesis two, is it? But I'm going to begin there. That the way we think about the present is very much shaped about our vision for the future. That our idea, our vision of the future, shapes and directs each moment of our lives. Do you believe that? I asked my son, Brandon if he would draw me a picture that try to show how that affects every day. So I think he, he came up with a sketch of uh, how this uh, affects our daily life. You can imagine coming home from work. And if you walk into the house and there's been a problem, and, and when you come in you see a big hole with, with spikes underneath, you might move forward in one way. If, on the other hand, if you come home like the bottom one and, and you, it's been a cold day like we've had and you see your favorite chair and the fire burning in the fireplace it will change your steps don't you think Uh, this is something we learn as children uh... children anywhere at all times who go on trips with their parents as you get going it seems long and they say are we there yet and i'll tell you the way you even ask that question is, is determined by the way you think about where you're going about the future if you think you're going to the beach or to Disneyland, then the anticipation gets to be greater and greater as you get close, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And the parents can say, it's going to be worth waiting for. But if you're all going to, to uh, what, uh, have a root canal, or sorry dentists who are here, and, oh, are we there yet? Do we have to go? You see, it changes your vision of the future. Changes your heart, your attitude, and your actions right now. I want us to grab hold of that. A study was done not so long ago of a group of civil service workers. Uh, they were divided into two groups. Um, they both did the same job. It was a, a job that was everyone viewed as mundane, boring, and just routine—the same thing day in, day out. But one group was promised that if they would meet certain standards at the end of the year, they would get a substantial financial raise. The other one had no prospects for anything changing. Just going on and on with that. Can you imagine the difference? How those two visions of the future, the difference it made in their lives. Well, it was, it was marked. The first group was much more productive in their work. There was virtually no turnover. And they reported very high job satisfaction in spite of the kind of the work that they were called to do. But the other group, was much, much less productive. There was tremendous turnover, high delinquency rates. They reported that they were dissatisfied with their jobs. The thing that you need to see is that our vision of the future changes both our internal beings as well as our external actions in the present. Now, that brings me back to the story of faith. You knew I'd get there. When you and I trust Jesus, we enter into what we've been calling God's good news. God himself, the creator of the world, says there is good news about who I am and what I have done and who you can be and what I am going to do. But what has happened to so many of us is that once we have received that good news, we have received Jesus into our lives. And sometimes we have thought that when we do, then the good news will begin immediately. And what's happened sometimes? Life remains hard. The world that we live in remains challenging. And sometimes life even becomes more difficult than it was before. Sometimes specifically because we are following Jesus now. And our friends and family members simply cannot understand it. So we've received good news, and yet it seems like our present lives are bad news. Anybody else experience that other than the pastor? I know that many of you have because you've talked to me about it, especially in these months. Now, we have something that's different. We, we should be able to live differently in the midst of the difficulties. And the Apostle Paul gave testimony to that in the book of, of Philippians. Anybody know where he was when he wrote this letter to the people in Philippi? He was in a prison. And he had come to Jesus and before he had had a pretty good life in the eyes of the world. And after he had come to Jesus, you can read about it in Second Corinthians. He had been shipwrecked. He had been beaten. He had been stoned. Now he was in a prison. And yet his testimony, and I think you may know these verses in Philippians 4, 13 and following. I want you to know I have learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know, he said, what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. But I'm telling you, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Brothers and sisters, in the story of our faith so far, the articles of faith we've looked at, we've seen some of the reasons why in the midst of this world we should be able to be content. Uh, One of the reasons is that something that robs us of contentment is often the shame and guilt of things in the past. And God knows those. And while we were sinners, He came and died for us. We know those things can be cast as far as east is from the west. Amen? And we know that when we receive Jesus, He not only puts our past behind us, but He gives His Holy Spirit to us so that in this world, whatever we face, we're not alone. God is with us. And one of the prayers that I've had is that we would experience this other great gift. He gives us one another. He gives us His family so that we come together and should never have to be alone. We are not alone. We are with us. But today I want to tell you something. I want to tell you that one of the greatest gifts that God gives us to live in this world is that he gives us a glimpse of what his future is for us. He declares to us that this world is not all that there is. That when we have loved ones experiencing death in this world, that is not the end of things. And today in our statement of faith we are going to look at the way that we put this together. Just a little glimpse. Of the future that God has said is in store. We put it in Article 9 of the Statement of Faith. It was read for us so beautifully before by Evan. But let's look at it again. This is what we believe. We believe in the glorious and personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come in power and great glory to gather His people. To raise the dead. To judge the nations. And to bring his kingdom to fulfillment. This coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy. And it motivates the believer to godly living, to growing faith, to sacrificial service, and to energetic mission. We believe that God will bring His gospel, His good news, to fulfillment at the end of the age. Now, I've got to make your expectations realistic here. I've got to tell you about the future of this sermon. (laughs) I will not, nor can I, address every question that we have about the future that God has in store for us today. Uh, Some of the issues that you may have perhaps have been addressed in the commentaries that I've put together and they'll be available at the welcome desk or online. What we are going to do today, what my prayer is at least, is this, that I'll be able to set before us again the great hope that God's Word sets before us and that our brothers and sisters who have gone on before us in faith and those around the world, in some of the places i mentioned, who are going through tough times now, have held on to ever since Acts chapter 1, when first they had seen Jesus die, and then they were agonizing, and then they had seen him risen, and then they were rejoicing, and then he says, I've got to go again, and as he ascended to heaven, and they must have been a bit downcast. Do you remember what the two angelic creatures declared to them? Why do you stand here looking up into the sky? (laughs) Because this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way that you see him going into heaven. Now today I'm going to begin here. I want us to remember a little bit of the beginnings of the story, the story that God has given us. Our children are calling it the big God story, what I've called the gospel. I want us to see it a little bit. I'll just summarize it quickly. Remember, will you, that life, human life, began in a garden, Eden, a beautiful, beautiful garden, where all relationships were right. It's what the Jewish people called Shalom. It began with life being the way it was supposed to be. It began with God saying, I am here. And before you were and anything else was, I am am <laughs> and he made us in his image and put us into the beautiful world in which we were able to be productive and rule over everything and all of our relationships were right but then the garden and its tree of life were lost due to sin everything went wrong do you remember adam and eve put themselves into the place of god they thought they knew what was good for their lives more than god did just like all of us do. And they went their own ways. But what happened was. Everything was broken. Um, their relationship with God was broken. They hid. Their relationships inside were broken. They experienced shame and guilt for the first time. Their relationship with one another was broken. As they accused one another. And their relationship with all nature was was broken. They no longer took care of it in the way that it should and so much of the disasters of our world came in but God loved the world as we came to articles 4 and 5 and he came in the person of Jesus Christ lived a sinless life and then he once again went to a garden this time the Garden of Eden and where Adam had said my will not yours. Jesus, when faced with the task, said, Father, your will, not mine. And he went to the cross, having lived a sinless life, and died in our place. He went to a tree to inaugurate a new future. To make it possible for sinful people to be declared right. And to begin to experience shalom again. To be able to have us gather on a Sunday morning. And to say, now therefore, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And he's begun a work in us. He has begun a work in us that is not yet complete, right? Not yet complete. But God promises that when he is done, shalom will be restored. And it will be in a garden city. It will be in a garden city. And we've already seen that he's given us his Holy Spirit. And Paul would say, that is just a down payment. Book of Ephesians, Holy Spirit, the word that he uses is for an engagement ring. God has said, you are mine and I am yours and this is going to be completed. And so even while we go through these tough times, even while Paul was in a prison, in Philippians 1.6, he would declare, I am confident of this, that God who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He'll bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so today I, I want to show you a little bit of that vision he gives us that has always motivated us, encouraged us, and if I can just summarize it, in Revelation 21:5, Jesus declares, "I will make everything new." So in part two, let's try to catch a little glimpse of God's completed work. Now here, look, you are with me, I see it. Here you and I would often like m- many more details than the Bible gives us. We want much more specificity about how the ending is going to come than God has given us. And even what He given us in His Word about the ending is often revealed in a kind of literature called apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation at the very end. It is filled with symbols and images that many people have found hard to understand. And, and, and in addition to that, Jesus would say God intended it that way. He, he wants us to know that there is a future, but it's, it's, it's for us to live in, in expectation that He will actually do it and know that it could happen at any time. It will be soon. But it's not for you and me to know the dates and the times and the seasons. Only one person knows that. Do you know who it is? Mark 13:32. Only one person knows what you and I often want to know and that is God the Father Himself. And, and yet the Bible does give us enough, like in Second Thessalonians chapter 5, so that you and I don't have to be like the rest of the world and be surprised when Jesus comes again. We can live our lives getting ready for Him to come. So let me tell you uh, a little bit about what we're told. The first point I just want to emphasize again is that Jesus has declared that He will come to earth again. And when He comes this next time, It will not be in lowliness in Bethlehem, in a a manger with shepherds coming. It is going to be in power and great glory. It will not be simply to come and inaugurate or begin something about God's breaking into this evil world. He is going to come and complete it and make sure that it is all the way it was supposed to be. Uh, Paul described Jesus coming simply. Uh, to a group of people in, in an area, Thessalonica. You can read about it, and it's something I would encourage you to read, of, especially if you're newer to the faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, begin with verse 13. Read all the way through chapter 5, at least through verse 11. And you need to know he was writing to a group of people who were so confused about the ending. They had seen Jesus go to heaven. They knew he, he had uh, uh, triumphed over death. And yet they sort of thought, well, then none of us will ever die if Jesus is in our lives. And yet some of their friends were dying and their loved ones were dying and they were discouraged. They were confused. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have gone on before us. In fact, I want you to know this, that when Jesus finishes his work, they will be those who rise first. And then we who are still alive when He comes will be gathered together with them. And we will be with them, and especially this, we will be together forever with the Lord. So He says you're going to feel sorrow when you lose loved ones. But I don't want you to have sorrow like the rest of the world where there's no hope. Ours is a sorrow when we miss loved ones, but filled with a hope that there will be a time of being rejoined and i'll tell you followers of jesus have looked forward to that coming ever since especially those who go through tough times those of us who live in the sunshine and when everything goes well sometimes we just well i'll just stay right here but i'm telling you others have been looking for it though i you know many of us over the centuries have disagreed over the details of the return of christ He has come and said, I'm going to bring my reign into this world. The evil one will no longer be the prince and power of this air." But we have thought over what that kingdom, that rule of God is going to look like. How long will it be? Uh, Will it be on earth? Will it be in his church? And what about all those signs that are talked about, about his coming? Can we figure it out? The Bible says he'll come like a thief in the night, but we're not going to let that happen. We're going to figure it out ahead of time. So we become obsessed with that and, and forget the vision. Maybe you know the story of a pastor as as early as 1695. His name was William Partridge. He published and distributed quite widely a pamphlet declaring that he had gained insight that the world was going to end in 1697. In 1698, he wrote and distributed another pamphlet this one claiming that the world had ended in 1697, but that no one cared take notice. Well, I'm telling you, that kind of speculation, which Jesus tells us we shouldn't engage in, we have done that kind of thing as his followers ever since. I remember a book I got when I was in college saying 88 reasons why Jesus must return before 1988. Well, here we, here we, here we are... Now, I've addressed again some of that in the commentaries that are available. But what we have chosen to do here at Lake Avenue Church is to affirm what I have always called the Christian consensus. What all of us have held on to and what has motivated and sustained believers ever since Jesus ascended to heaven. And I think the clearest description of it is found in Revelation 21 and 22 that Gene read for us earlier. So I want you to turn especially to Revelation 21. Now, let me just say a word to you about reading the book of Revelation, because I want you to read it. It will be a blessing, but sometimes we go into it and we just cannot figure out what's going on. I I think the, the single most important word that I would give to you is this. When you begin to read it, always remember that in first respect, it was written to seven real churches in the first century. They're described in in Revelation 2 and 3. In, in, In what they called Asia Minor, they're in Turkey. They were real churches. Do you know anything about these churches? You should if you were here in my First Peter series. It was written to the very same churches. They were the churches that first experienced persecution against believers. Um... Revelation takes place. Do you remember the book of First Peter? Um, in which Peter would say, I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, I know you're losing your jobs. I know you're being kicked out of the communities because of following Jesus. But I want to tell you about a living hope that makes a difference in this difficult and dying world. Do you remember that whole series? Well, Revelation is written a number of years later and things had gotten worse. And, and they were even going to get worse. An emperor named Domitian would come in. And he would slaughter many, many believers. In fact, it's in this, this area of Turkey where the first Christians had to give their life specifically because they followed Jesus. It felt to them like everything else in this world was really in control. Oh yes, they had heard uh, Jesus defeated death by a resurrection. That, that God is greater than anything in this world. But it felt like the, the powers in this world were greater. The world, the flesh, the devil, sin and death. It just seems like that. And, and what, John, what, what happens in, in the book of Revelation is, under the inspiration of God, John on, on an island being exiled is able to catch a vision and, and, the, and the curtain is drawn aside to see who is truly in charge. And they were able to see that towering over all of the universe is God Himself. Declaring, I am here. I know what I am doing. And I'm going to bring it to completion. And when I bring it to completion, all is going to be new. So be faithful. Do not give up. Be an overcomer. Be an overcomer. If you will be faithful to me, you will see it will have been worth it. And they would say, are we there yet? They would say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. When are you going to complete this work? Now, I want to show you just one part of the vision. It's in Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Apocalyptic literature will do things that uh, English teachers don't like. It's kind of like a collage, any of you who are artists, where you put all sorts of different images together on the collage, and you have to stand back and see the whole, and then it makes sense to you. What we find in the book of Revelation is so many times, right next to one another, English teachers, they are mixed metaphors. So if your kids write them, you say, you can't do that, stick with one metaphor. But but God doesn't have to listen to us. He's going to do it the way He wants. And so what we have in Revelation 21, 1 and 2 are three metaphors of what the end will be like. Number one, it will be a new heaven and a new earth. So you've got to get rid of the ideas from the cartoons of, of us up there floating around in the clouds with ethereal sorts of bodies and wings playing harps or... Uh, tambourines if you're Lily Bosch or, or, or Jonathan Arcello. You might have one up there, but you'll, you'll have a real body. It's not what it's going to be like. We will have real bodies. When God created the world, remember in Genesis 1 and 2, the material world that He made was very good. Uh, we don't believe that immaterial things are the only good. We believe, and, the, and the body that Jesus had after His resurrection was a physical body. Now, it was different from the one before, but it was recognizable. It bore evidence of the past, but it was a recognizable body. Do you remember Luke chapter 24? Um, Jesus had died and risen again, and then he passed through the walls. Well, you say, well, there's one of those. That's an immaterial body. He can pass through walls. But do you remember what Jesus did? Oh, no, this is a physical body, he said. Bring me a piece of fish. It's one of my favorite things. And he ate it, and it didn't fall down on the ground. (laughs) I love it. And so we'll have the same kinds of bodies. Pastor, tell me more about this. I don't know a lot more about this. Paul tried to talk about it in 1 Corinthians 15 and following. He said, Well, it's going to be like this. It's going to be a real physical body. It's like a seed planted in the ground. Continuity, the same, different. It's going to be great. It will not be susceptible to pain or death or dying or even sin. A new heaven and a new earth. And I'm telling you, our all nature now, as, as Paul says in Romans 8, it groans for when that new heaven and that new earth is created. Because the, the universe groans because our sin has affected all of nature. And until you and I, as people made in His image, are whole and complete, nothing will be whole and complete. First thing I want you to see, it is going to be a place, a great place, a new heaven and a new earth where we can be productive and we can live and begin to do the things that we were made to do, rule and reign and care for what God has created, not just playing harps. I like harps, but two, metaphor number two, it will be a new city. It changes. New heaven and earth. Oh, and I see a new city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Heaven touching the earth. Do you see it there? Does it it surprise you that God describes the future as a city? I, I think that might surprise a lot of people because we often think, oh, if I get rich, I'm going to move out of the city and I'll get away from people. I mentioned last week I've been watching Secret Millionaire, and one of them had, with getting great wealth, uh, lived way away from anybody, behind gated uh, fences, uh, no contact with neighbors, and he began to think after he met some people that that's not the way we were meant to be. We were meant to live in community. But our cities, we say, Pastor, you know our cities are so messed up. And do you know why they are? Because of us. (laughs) Because people, sinful people live together in cities. And, and that's what happens. But you know what's going to happen in heaven? We're going to be remade. And you know what the most beautiful part of God's creation is? Made in His very image. It's people. So heaven at its very best will be people remade living in right relationship with one another, singing praise to God, serving alongside of one another and enjoying life together. It is going to be a wonderful, wonderful place. It will be a new city. Yes, it will be a river running through it. I like rivers. It will be a, a, a city garden because there will be trees there with fruit that is growing. There will be mountains there. Read Revelation 21 and 22 and you'll see what I'm getting at. But just like there is a new heaven and a new earth where the relationship to nature is restored, it will be a new city where our relationships with one another will be what they are supposed to be. And Revelation 5 and 7 tell us that those relationships will be with people from every tribe and every language and every nation. And and church is supposed to be a foretaste of that. By God's grace, He'll make us to be. Then a third metaphor. It's not just a new... Heaven and a new earth where the relationship to nature is restored. Not just a new city where relationships among people are restored, but a new bride with the bridegroom being our God and us being made right to come in beauty before Him. You know that's an image that the Bible uses a lot about us as God's people being a bride, being made ready for the bridegroom. But the thing that goes wrong is we're unfaithful to to the bridegroom. Read the book of Hosea. We put other things in His place. We've often even put ourselves in His place. We have walked away from Him. But Jesus came after us. Just like in Genesis 3, God came seeking, God came seeking. Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. He lived perfectly. He gave His life. And He now invites all who are thirsty. All who want to begin to live again. Come to Me and find forgiveness and a new life. What He's saying is that the opportunity to have the relationship even with the perfect God is going to be restored and made new. Look at how He puts it in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now, the dwelling place of God is with the people God himself will be with them and they will be his he will be their God and in that time no more mourning no more pain no more death and no more dying do you see what I'm getting at all that was lost in Genesis 3 is going to be fully restored revelation 21 brings things to an ending It starts in a garden, it ends in a garden. It starts with shalom, it ends with shalom, and apparently it's even going to be better. Now, I have read Bertrand Russell, the atheist, and I know that what he says, he says that this idea about the future that Christians have, this heaven that church people have, is so boring, so mundane, so purposeless, That no one has ever succeeded in describing one single enjoyable day there. Though many have described that kind of day at the beach, he said. Well, let me tell you. I'm going to try. Because I think I've had some foretastes of what that eternity will be like. And I'm thinking that most of you have too. I'm praying all of you have. Have you ever had one of those times... Where you have been gathered together with your closest friends. Maybe you haven't even seen them for a while. You have that sense of anticipation, don't you? If you're going to be meeting at a wonderful place. And you come in maybe at 6 p.m. Have a meal together. Enjoying being with one another. Afterwards you go out. Some of you go out and do some things together. The others sit around talking. Maybe you put together and have some cards or board games with one another. You're there together. And suddenly you look at your watch it's two o'clock in the morning. What's the time's flown by? I feel like we just started. I have so much more I want to talk about. I want to have you ever experienced that? Just take that. That is life intensified. That's life the way it's supposed to be. Take that experience if you can sense it. Intensify that by a thousand times. Ten thousand times. And that's what heaven is going to be like. It's going to be a beautiful place. Revelation 21.5 Behold, I am making everything new. Is what Jesus declares. I'll tell you. Those Turk- believers in Turkey who are going through tough times. They read this and said, that's worth waiting for. And they were faithful to God. I've been there to some of those places. Some of you have even gone with me into some of those cities in Turkey. We have gone into the arenas where in public, Christians, simply because they were Christians, were put to death. We have seen the cages where the wild animals were. And have seen the places where Christians stood and sang hymns of faith, knowing what was ahead of them. We have seen the place where the animals would come out and maul them even as they trusted the Lord. Knowing that this life is not all there is. Knowing that death is not the end of things. Trusting that the God that they have placed their faith in is good and will make everything new. What they believed about the future enabled them to be faithful in the present. It changed their lives and it will yours and mine too, if we can but see it. Because we Southern Californians, we're obsessed with the new and the young. I, maybe it's the whole world, but I think especially us, don't you? We do everything we can to keep ourselves looking young. But we look at ourselves and we see ourselves wrinkling and, and aging. We fight it off with creams and surgery and exercise and vitamins. But i just got to tell you, it might help a little while, but it isn't going to help long. I I was looking at a picture of me when I first came here. Do you know I was younger when I came? (laughs) It is discouraging. It is discouraging. If your vision of the future is what our world feeds us, I'm telling you, the alternative visions to God are senseless when you think about them. Just just live, make a lot of money if you can. And maybe you can retire early and and get out there and separate yourself from people. Just vacation all the time. What do you do then? Square dancing, just golf all day, every day. What do you do? Uh, Live for your career, live for that gold watch when you retire. Build a bigger home, have bigger investments. You know none of that's going to last. Anybody know that? And the Bible gives us a much more compelling future. I will come and you will experience shalom, life as it was supposed to be, and it will be filled with joy. And so we should live now in the light of that future vision. What should be different? The Bible tells us everything. One is. We should seek every moment of our lives to be ready for the return of our, of our groom. He's coming. It's soon. He's written it in such a way that we can't exactly know. It could be right here in the middle of this sermon. You might say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He's coming. Are there some things in your life that you know would not be pleasing to Him? In the light of that future, will you now give that to Him? Give it to Him. Say, Father, take this as far as east is from the west. Jesus died that He could present us, Ephesians 5, as spotless and blameless before our God. It should motivate us to be ready to meet Him. It should also, if we have any people that we love, motivate us to want to tell them about Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When we know what we know, that each one is going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give account. And when we know ourselves and others, as we know ourselves and others, that none of us on our own is ready to meet God. And yet Christ died for us and for all. 2 Corinthians 5. Shouldn't we do as Paul did? This coming of Christ, what we know and the love of Christ for all compels us to go out and say, you need to be reconciled to God. Today is the day of salvation. It should should motivate you to make sure that your life is in God's hand, that you've trusted Jesus and that you share the hope in Christ that is available and needed by all. Then the last point, is that Paul makes it so clear in 1 Thessalonians that this return of Christ to make all things new is the greatest encouragement to us in a difficult world. I wrote in the worship folder about a pastor in India that I met who told me 80% of his people didn't have enough food. And then he asked me to preach at his church. And I went there thinking that this would be the most depressed group of people I've ever met. It was the most joyous group of people I've ever met. They sang better than we sang today. Just amazing. And, and then they invited me to lunch. And it was filled with joy and warmth and hospitality. And I asked him, how can this be? And they said, it, he said, it can be, because they believe what the Bible says. That, that the only thing that can make sense out of the kind of world you and I live in is that this is not the end of things. And this will be the end of things. That even death itself has been defeated by our Lord who will return. And, and I think many of you know what that has meant to me as your pastor. And I think it means a lot to many of you. Because I'll tell you, there are things that happen to us that when they happen, they make no sense It seems like everything is out of control. We cannot see any purpose in it at all. What kinds of things, Pastor? One of your children will die in infancy. Try to come up with a pat answer for that. Your your brother or sister, in the youth and strength of their lives, will be killed by a drunk driver. Be let off. Try to make sense out of that. Your father or mother will be diagnosed as having Alzheimer's disease and won't know you. And then die a tragic death. Try to make sense out of this. I am guessing these sorts of things and more have happened to all of you. And I'll just tell you, if they happen, they will. Isn't this a downer sermon? (laughs) The powers in this world sometimes seem to be in control. You and I inside, if we're honest... We'll cry out about the injustice of it all. And we'll become angry at times. And then you're going to show up at church. And and the pastor is going to have the audacity to say, The only thing that makes sense out of this world as it is now, is that this world as it is now is not the end of the things. That the God who created the heavens and the earth declares to us, I am And I am on the throne. And I will do what is loving. And I will do what is right. And I will do what is just. But you must trust me. And you must wait for me. Even if you don't see it right now. And that preacher might even take you back. To our brothers and sisters in places. Like John chapters uh, 10 and 11. Where two sisters Mary and Martha. Had lost their brother. And Jesus shows up late. And they're really angry with him. Lord if you'd been here earlier. Our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus turns to them and He says, But I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in Me will live, even if he be dead. And then the pointed question, Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because if you do, it will change everything. And he might even take us on to John 13 and 14 where the disciples were living this hard life. They'd left everything behind to follow Jesus. They'd lost their careers. They'd lost their standing in the community. They'd lost their families, but they still had Jesus. And you know what? Jesus says, and I'm going too. Don't let your hearts be troubled. They are angry. I have a better way, Jesus, Peter says. Thomas, you say we know the way to where you're going. But we don't even know where you're going. And what does Jesus tell them? You believe in God. Believe in me. You've got to learn to trust me. I know where I'm going. And I'm going there for you. You cannot go there unless I go. I know what I'm doing. though you cannot see it. And I'm doing it for you so that you can be a part of that place where there is plenty of room in the New Jerusalem in the remade heaven and earth. And and so I'm going to ask you the same question as Jesus asked the sisters. Do you believe this? And I'm going to declare to you that though sometimes I waffle because I am still human, I have made an intentional commitment to trust Him. And based upon my own experience of Him being trustworthy, but much, 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 much more based upon the truthfulness of this Word, I declare to you that in His time and in His way, He will make everything new. And it is worth waiting for. To His glory. Amen. (laughs) To His glory.